Good afternoon, good evening, good morning, everybody. This is Peter Joseph, and welcome to In All Seriousness. The subject today is universal basic income. We have a roundtable here with Mr. Michael Jordet and Rob Dew. And we have special guests, Larry Cohen of buildthefloor.org and has been working on creating coalitions and UBI advocates all across LA. He's also the founding member of the Economic Security Project and runs the Los Angeles Basic Income Meetup Group. And we have remotely a very special guest, Mr. Scott Santons. I said that right, Scott, right? Mr. Santons, right. very good. He has lived with a crowdfunded monthly basic income since January 2016, has been a moderator of the basic income community on Reddit since 2013. And Scott, I've been following your work for a long time. You've done tremendous writing for the Huffington Post, for World Economic Forum, Politico, and you've, uh, you've really done an excellent job with social media out there, I've noticed, and I'm always amazed at the ability <laughs> you've, to track uh, the, what, is, what has really become a, a subject that a lot of people are talking about now. Um, and I wanted to kind of kick this off with a little bit of history uh, before I enter into my first question here. Uh, and, that is, and that is the fact that 1795, Thomas Paine was talking about a dividend for society, a, basically a minimum guaranteed income or a universal basic income. There's nuances to those different perspectives. But, uh, you know, it's very interesting. And even Napoleon once said that man is entitled by birthright to a share of the earth's produce sufficient to fill the needs of his existence, which is a very uncharacteristic thing that Napoleon would say. Yeah. Um, well, and I want to I pose the first question to all of you. We'll start with you, Scott. What does UBI reflect? What is the metaphor here? What does it actually mean? Well, okay. Um, I think the, the best way to look at basic income is actually uh, with a question. And so the question is, what is it that you're not doing in life because you don't start each month with enough income to meet your basic needs? You know, so the question is, is you know, what, there, there's so much that people want to be doing, but because we have to worry about figuring out how to acquire money to live, that there's so much that we're not doing. And I think if, if people focus on what they could be doing and want to be doing, then that's really what basic income is about because it's not so much money, it's what money enables people to do. Excellent. And I, I want to actually pose that question to Larry as well, but I want to shift it slightly because I think I, I didn't phrase it as annoyingly philosophical as I was hoping. <laughs> and what I, what I really, and that's an excellent response, but my, my, my core interest is what does it represent? Like UBI represents something deeper than just trying to free humanity from the drudgery of an unequal system and all these problems that we've been dealing with. There's something deeper inside of it as a kind of metaphor that says, well, and this is my view, I'll just go ahead and answer it for myself and you guys can jump in is that basically you have all the fruits of our society after generations and generations of people innovating and, and working diligently and economically. And we've created this uh, new level of abundance and productivity. And it means something socially to have a universal basic income in its symbology because it's really the fruits, as Napoleon mm -hmm. said, of what we've been doing as a, as a civilization. What do you think, Larry? Well, I agree with all that. Okay. I think for me, I mean, that's why I describe basic income as a floor. I think almost like a common ground for everyone to share and be a part of. You know, it's not, it's, it's sort of like the earth, right? It's everyone's on it. And that floor represents that foundation for everybody. Yeah. And without that, you know, we lose a lot of the potential, the possibility, and, you know, 
the contributions that everyone can and should be giving that come out of one's true self, one's true nature of what they want to be doing with their life. Life is short yeah. and life is, should be filled with the opportunity to do things that mean something to you. Yeah. And that's why I think basic income helps in, enable. You call that the, um, the floor. Um, I know that Scott uh, did an article about the TV series called The Expanse where they did a, a program called Basic yeah. where it was actually mm -hmm. the ceiling, mm -hmm. you know, and so it's very important that you call the, uh, the floor. It's a, it's a starting point. And also, Peter, you were talking about um, it going all the way back to Napoleon, but um, I find it odd that uh, in recent history, it goes back to Nixon was, was looking at implementing this in the late 60s. So... <laughs> Um, I would like yeah. to know why this hasn't come well, to fruition. Well, yeah, we, we've known Milton Friedman, who, of course, takes a very libertarian perspective. So there's, it, there's a right and left kind of combination. What do you think about that, Rob? Well, I was going to say, it, to me, it's the ultimate conclusion of the Industrial Revolution. It's hmm. the promised conclusion of the Industrial Revolution, of the, every machine age, every time jobs were lost. And I think it also means that we recognize that we're human family. And that because of everything we've accomplished up to this point, we have enough to give everybody to survive. And I think that's important. Now, as far as the left-right paradigm, to me, UBI must be an antithesis to most libertarian Republican perspectives, at least the current uh, folks that are in power. It, it, it seems to run antithetical to their ideas about hard work and all these sort of false American ideals about pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and mm -hmm. so forth. So I'm, I'm curious, and I'm sure we'll get into it, as to how we're going to well, let's, bring uh, these let's folks to Well, let's touch upon that. Scott, you know, you've, you've probably seen all the arguments. Uh, what's your view when it comes to kind of the political polarization and the different perspectives? And I, I would just add one thing. You know, we have billionaires now that clearly have high market values that are talking about UBI from Zuckerberg to Musk and so on. How do you, how do you navigate this? Yeah, so I, I believe that, um, that the ideal version of universal basic income would actually be the result of both sides pulling towards what they most want. This left version, let's say, is something, it's more about getting a, a very high basic income, possibly not eliminating much of anything that exists this right now and just having this new UBI alongside everything that's really high. The right version is thinking, okay, well, let's get rid of as much stuff as we can and replace it with cash and let's give people as little as we can to further incentivize people's need to work. So if you combine those two together, I think that's your optimal version. I think it's a version where it's not too high and it's not too low and you don't eliminate everything, but you do eliminate quite a bit because there are a lot of programs that we do want to get rid of and replace with cash, but there are certainly programs that they want to keep. So I think that, that the, the best version is going to be essentially this new grand compromise, uh, this potentially grand compromise between the two. And I also think that's also why it's so important that both sides push for their version that they most want. As an, as an example, Let's say, actually, we can even, we can loop back and go back to Nixon, because this is a good example. Okay, so what happened under Nixon was, this was called the Family Assistance Plan, and it was essentially a negative income tax designed for families. So if you were an individual, you would have gotten it, but if you were a family with any amount of kids, then you would have gotten it and would increase per. So the reason that didn't end up happening, even though Nixon proposed it in 69, it passed the House in 70, it passed the House again in 71, the reason that that didn't happen is because the left felt that the amount was not high enough. 
and the right panicked over the preliminary results from the experiments, which ended up being false, but they were worried that it would lead to heavy divorce rates and the dissolution of the families in households. Interesting. So that was kind of your left and the right, but that, that was something that really upset me and I think was just like a huge mistake, not only for the US, but actually I think could say to have negatively impacted the world is that the left refused to get behind, or at least in sufficient numbers to get behind this uh, lower basic income guarantee. Because I, I see that that would have been a step forward. And because the US would be leading in that direction with an income guarantee, which was just brand new, then I think that other countries would have followed suit. And then I think that we would have reached a full universal basic income, you know, potentially decades ago. Yeah. And the symbology of it, I think, is interesting because when you take a welfare position, it automatically puts the individual in kind of a, a lower moral capacity. The society looks at somebody that's getting welfare uh, in, in a derogatory yeah. way. In this society, uh, yeah. And what, and what universal basic income does is it says, no, this is okay. This is a human dividend. Mm -hmm. This is something that we've achieved as a civilization, mm -hmm. which, you know, in the light of the, in light of the, night, the zeitgeist movement in terms of resource-based economics and all of this, it's the same basic logic. So we do have the capacity to create abundance, only in the case of universal basic income, we're still using money. Uh, which which is fine as a transitional step. You know, when you mentioned the idea of wel welfare and, and people sort of having that jump to conclusions about what that means in terms of dignity, I think basic income really helps address that yeah. because right now we have two types of welfare and one is welfare, which is for low income. And then there's what I call wealth fare, which are, you know, large tax cuts and tax expenditures for mm -hmm. wealthy individuals and corporations. And we don't think of that as, you know, a support system for those people. But that is, that's yeah. definitely there. And because basic income is universal, you eliminate the haves and the have-nots and who should be getting it and you know all the, the work and the effort that goes into saying, well, I deserve it because of X, Y, and Z. And it recognizes that everyone has that basic human dignity mm -hmm. that should be provided. And rather than try to pick and choose and have lobbyists decide mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. to carve out an exception for us, it's like this is the starting point for everyone, mm -hmm. and that's the fair you know, way to set up a society so that everyone has that same starting point. You can you know, go from there. It I think that's super important. It eliminates the administration of that. Absolutely. And I, I would imagine that's a very strong argument for the you know, assumed right position, which is you eliminate a lot, of, a lot of government. You eliminate the handout part. It's everybody gets it and we don't need to adjudicate it, and we don't need people to go and monitor to see if you deserve it. Two things about universalism, too, versus targeting is really important, and this actually goes back as well to uh, the expanse mention, uh, is that the way that targeted systems are designed is that in order to receive a benefit, you have to only earn this amount of money, and then if you start earning more than that, then you lose it. So like a really good example of this is to look at, say, disability income. And we'll say, oh, well, you know, we have to make sure that those with disability get this income as long as they can prove that they're disabled. And so when we do that, then we also remove that income from them. Like in the US, if you earn over um, $1,208 per month, then at least that was last year, then you lose all of your benefits. So if you're earning, let's say, over, you know, $2,000 or something in disability income, then that's gone as soon yeah. as you earn less than that so it's like you're worse off and so you have all these people on a disability right now in the u.s that are essentially locked out of the economy it's like the government has said 
you know, you're, we're, you're valueless to us, so we're just going to keep you alive. It's just really just like the expanse. You're just keeping people alive with money, and that's, or, you know, just that's it. And they're not able to build this off this floor that basic income is. And the other thing is that universalism we know is actually really successful, especially if you look at Alaska, such a great example. That mm. here in Alaska, since 1982, everyone received universally, no matter how much the money they earn, rich or poor, male or female, child or adult, you all receive this universal dividend, and it's seen as your share of the wealth of Alaska. Right. And that's an extremely popular program. And just this idea, too, that it's your shared amount of this wealth. Exactly. You know, like exactly. It, there's so much more than oil wealth too it's you know that you can look at so many things on the earth that everyone should share a part of that's not only natural wealth but also commonly creative wealth and you know this just makes sense that everyone should receive a dividend for that now scott in the alaska plan has that uh monetary value increased so it has been increasing and it varies they use like a formula where they calculate it for the past five years worth and so a couple years ago it was it was hitting a max at over two thousand dollars per year and then the governor came up and said uh no let's actually cut the check in about half and everyone gets a thousand dollars per year now even though they should be getting more than that uh, because they want to make sure that it lasts longer and so that's actually like in the courts now people are not happy with that and they're also most likely going to vote on that soon too because the people are going to say hey no you can't reduce our cut we actually should get the full amount oh, wow. and so we'll see how they vote on that but we do know actually from a recent surveying poll done by the economic security project as well that the people of alaska would actually rather pay income taxes in alaska than lose their dividend <laughs> and so that's actually a really interesting <laughs> response is. because before like years ago that wasn't true but it's become so popular that, that they would rather keep their dividend. And that dividend is approximately 2000 for the year? It had been, uh, like, year before last, uh, it was $2,000, over $2,000 a year. On average, it's been around $1,000 a year. The highest was under Sarah Palin, and it was around $3,600 oh, wow. that year. That's interesting. Uh, so, so, Scott, what's the difference between the Alaska plan and that Indian reservation? There actually is something very interesting uh, that we looked at in the U.S., which was the uh, Great Smoky Mountains Study of Youth. And that was in North Carolina, and that was the Cherokee Nation. Mm -hmm. So the Cherokee Nation, they started at a casino, That's and they started paying out about. dividends. Yeah. And so that that tribe, you would receive, um, you know, it increased over time, but over the time of this, uh, it's about a 10-year study or so, uh, averaged like four to $6,000 uh, per year. So that's that was a it was a good good percentage of a basic income. And what is your estimate for what UBI might be? In the U.S., I talk about a UBI of twelve thousand dollars per year, one thousand dollars per month, and I talk about that because that's how we already define the federal poverty line. Right. So we have all these programs designed around that. So it only makes sense that at least as a starting point to say, okay, based on our existing definitions, let's end a poverty with $12,000 a year, and then you know we can go from there. Which brings us to the reasons. So there's a whole slew of social, public health issues, but I think the most outstanding, at least in public conversation, is technological unemployment in the 21st century. What do you think about this, Larry, as a core reason? Yeah, I think, I mean, there are lots of reasons because the idea of basic income has been around for a long time, and there have been 
building reasons for supporting it. Yeah. But obviously, as of late, I think it's it's tough to ignore the the massive changes that are going technologically. You just go outside, and here in in Los Angeles, you might bump into a self driving car. Yeah. And you know, you you read about trucks that are driving themselves, and you read about the jobs that have already been lost to automation and manufacturing, and the fact that we're still producing more and more with less and less people. And I think it's it you can't ignore it anymore. You you obviously would have a friend or a family member or someone in your your circle who's been affected by this directly. And it's not even just the idea of losing all the jobs. I like to focus on the disruption mm. that the job creation and loss is creating. Yeah. And so it's not about that we won't have any jobs at all. It's about the level of disruption to people's lives and being able to support themselves and retrain and find a skill that they want to get more involved in or that one that, you know, happens to pay enough so that you can survive this new economy. Yeah. I think that's that's the real focus that needs to be on this. You know, there's a, a lack of visceralness, I think, when people consider this type of program. You know, speaking of reasons, I always refer back to studies and statistics that relate to public health, such as the work of Richard Wilkinson, and to show that inequality is one of the most destabilizing and, and public health reducing forces in the world. Life expectancy, math and literacy, infant mortality, homicides, violence, imprisonment, teenage births, trust, obesity, mental illness, addiction, of course, social mobility. So there's that whole cloud of, of distortion that happens but you know, going back to technological unemployment, when you hear people like Elon Musk or Zuckerberg talk about this, uh, it seems like that's what they're really thinking about because mm -hmm. you know that's visceral and statistically it makes perfect sense. And they think about it for you know whatever reasons they are, especially for like automation, technological employment. But they're not really understanding the full scope of how UBI will affect everything. So and, and that's that's good for us because I think that that the billionaires don't recognize what power there is with this redistribution of power that will take place with an unconditional basic income. Because if you have the power to say no, then you are no longer forced to actually do the bidding of, say, the billionaire class and the owners of society. You can say, hey, uh, I know whereas before you would have withheld what I need to live in order to work for you, but I already have what I need to live. And so here's the deal. If you want me to work for you, you have to pay me this amount, or I need this benefits, or you need to be this hours, or like there's there's actually more of a equal negotiation of labor uh, between capital and labor. So if if these billionaires don't see that, then great, that's good. That's good for everybody <laughs> who cares about really actually changing inequality. Uh, because there's going to have you're going to have these these secondary effects and tertiary effects mm -hmm. that come from an unconditional basic income that will further reduce inequality. And uh, so another point as well is that uh, again I, I do see this as as a big step forward with that will open up doors to other steps. It's almost like I see basic income as like a as a skeleton key, and there's all these locked doors out there right now, mm -hmm. and we have to unlock those doors first before we can open them and walk through them. And I think UBI will enable us to unlock those doors, and it's still up to us to walk through them, but at least they're unlocked now. And so I, I think that there's there's a lot more to this where, let's say if you're looking, um, if we change the way that we look at um, at basic income as like a dividend, and you know we all feel that we, are, that we have a share of uh, the productive wealth of nations, 
then if we see that, then we can start to see that in other places as well. So let's take an example, it's like a Facebook. You know, so the value of Facebook is within the network. It's within the people who are contributing to it. It's every status update is essentially a, a micro task. There's an example of micro work or atomized work that we don't see as work because it's so tiny and it's not remunerated. So with a basic income, people might be thinking, hey, I think we should get like a share of the wealth that we're creating on Facebook, that we should get some kind of dividend for this. Like if we're creating big data, not only for, for Facebook, for all these companies that we're creating big data for, then we should, we should actually get a cut of that. And if you do that, then suddenly there's less for the billionaires uh, to become billionaires with because we're sharing better the value that we're creating together. So it's, it, yeah. I think that there's a lot that we can build off of that towards this more equal future. And um, just one other thing as well, I just want to mention that first of all, you know, I, I think it's really important about the uh, the spirit level and knowing about all the effects of, of economic stats on all these factors. So one of them that, that you didn't include that I think is a, it's a, a really big one is uh, cortical surface area of children. Oh. And because I, I think that's right. that's really messed up that that if you look at, they, they looked at uh, cortical surface areas uh, based on socioeconomic status. For families who earned over $50,000, there was really no difference for their kids, but below $50,000 per year, then you started to see a difference in cortical surface area. And then for kids in poverty, that difference is exponential. So it just makes a huge difference. The, the, if, you have, if you have a family who's earning you know, a few thousand dollars a year, then that child is actually essentially getting brain damaged from youth. Yeah. And we have to make sure that you get, we absolutely cover the basics so that we aren't doing that. Because I think that is like part of our big problem in society is that, you know, we're just, we're, we're not reaching our potential by actually starving the brains from birth. Oh, yeah. You've you know, numerous correlations of poverty relating to lower IQs. And you know, Universal Declaration of Human Rights by the United Nations makes it very clear that it should be a fundamental observed right to have water and food and basic shelter and necessities. And Seems it's like just a no brainer. It is. But, you know, it's obviously just kind of rhetoric on the part of the U.N. You know, they're, they're trying to be you know, this positive force, at least on paper. Um, but, you know, it, it's so I, I want to think about um, means of funding now, since we're moving very quickly here. You know, a lot of people criticize, well, there's not enough money in our taxation. You know, how do we what are you, be a socialist and redistribute all the billionaires wealth? So uh, like, let's start with you, Larry. What do you support in terms of where this money comes from? I think when people ask how to fund it, which is usually one of the first questions they ask, I always often say, well, let's talk about the system we have now and how much we're paying into the system to get the results that we're getting. So how much are we paying to not have a basic income? How much are we paying in the cost of poverty, both in adult and children? How much are we paying in the cost of higher health care costs, you know, lesser uh, education outcomes, higher crime rates, the loss of potential of you know, our fellow men and women? I mean, that's, yeah. it's staggering. I mean, you can try to calculate it. We're talking trillions of dollars, both in economic value and in just the, the raw potential of people. Problem solved. Right, exactly. So like when people say, oh, how are you going to pay for it? It's like, think yeah. about the, the amount of money we're going to be saving because we're creating a society where people have their potential, being able to reach their potential and yeah. have their basics covered. But if you right. want to get into the further programs of, you know, the cut and dries, I believe, you know, going back to the welfare program, welfare program um, side of things, you know, you can consolidate low-income programs, certain low-income programs, and also consolidate the tax cuts and expenditures that directly impact many of the wealthy and for 
private citizens and corporations. So that can pay for a huge chunk of it. You can recognize the collective common assets that Scott spoke about earlier. So you're talking about whether it's collectively participating in, like a financial system, the collective assets that we have, uh, like the environment uh, that, that were inherited by all of us, or the collective funding that we provided to the research and technology side that our US government helped create all the products that are now leading this tech revolution and causing unemployment. You know, you can you can pull in a dividend from all of these different assets mm -hmm. that we don't recognize today, and you know provide that as the source for basic income funding, and clearly be able to pay for it. Yeah, that uh, that just about covers it. But if I want to get into more details, um, like specifically speaking, especially like in the U.S., I would love to see a, a land value tax as one way of going about this because I think that's such a great example of co-created wealth and that actually goes back to Thomas Paine as well because Thomas Paine's argument was that hey the earth existed and then suddenly we started creating private property and that prevents people who could have had that property and so those owners of property own a ground rent to the rest of society right. and so that's how a land value tax and dividend would work it's saying that okay um, you know we are all creating the value of the uh, you know the value of land minus what's built on it and we should share in that dividend together. So, just as a quick example, you know, if they, if they, uh, you know, if you take like a, a millionaire's mansion and transport that and switch it with a, a piece of desert, you know, in the middle of the Sahara or something, then that desert that be that is now the new spot in that rich, you know, mansion neighborhood is suddenly worth a lot of money, and that mansion that's now sitting in the middle of the desert is worth practically nothing except for the parts that it's made out of. Right. So all that value is socially created. Right. And it's that we should share in it. And, um, you know, so I think a land value tax makes sense. And uh, that would also be hugely progressive because, of course, most ownership is actually at the top. Right. And um, a carbon tax, I think, is our best immediate step forward uh, because I think we, we could enact that at any point. It would just be an immediate thing. And because it's revenue neutral, we would say, you know, act a, uh, you know, $40 uh, per ton of CO2, and then you'd increase that tax every year over time, every year and every year. And that dividend, which would not go to government, it would just go to everybody shared together as a dividend, then that would actually increase over time as well. And so that actually creates a really interesting, and I think, like important to the success and survival of human civilization that we actually start to incentivize the reduction of our carbon footprint. Of so if it gets, if it's more expensive to have a carbon footprint that's larger, then we're going to not want to do that. And that also helps equalize the costs of, of more sustainable energies and stuff, because that would effectively be cheaper now compared to, because right now, the costs of the fossil fuel economy are externalized onto everybody else. Right. They're not paying that. We're not paying that. But you are paying that if suddenly you get asthma or if like sure. the, the waters rise and start flooding everything. So I think that a carbon tax makes just complete sense for this step towards basic income. And if you did that, um, you could actually create like a good $100, $200 per month of dividend um, you know, within a few years. Now, Scott, you've you've thrown out a thousand dollars as kind of a starting point for this to be implemented. Um, that's across the board; doesn't matter where you live. Um, is that adjusted for inflation? And does universal basic income 
have the possibility to cause inflation to happen faster because people just jack up the prices to account for the UBI, right? Sure. Yeah. So that's a you know very common uh, question. And so first of all, the way I would go about it is to index the basic income to productivity per capita, GDP per capita. Uh, you know, because it should be seen as a share of productivity. Right. If we had done this back uh, under Nixon, if we had initiated a poverty level basic income of what would then you know be equal now to thousand dollars per month, then right now we'd all be earning about twenty six hundred dollars per month in basic income. Sounds just good. through index oh, of productivity. <laughs> So it only makes sense that over time it grows as we are able to accomplish more with less. Right. You're seen as our share. As far as inflation goes, this it's like a it's a very long multivariable equation. It's like um, you know, so people who feel that it might lead to basic income, it's like saying that A plus B plus C plus D plus E plus G equals ten. And it's like, well, wait a second, there's actually a lot of different settings in there, and it all depends on you know which one is is set at. But so uh, it's important as far as inflation goes to understand that that for one, for the most part, we're talking about not expanding the money supply. We're talking about a transfer of existing right. money. Right. And so you're not just you know ballooning up the supply such that more and more dollars are chasing the same amount of stuff. It's the same amount of dollars chasing the same amount of stuff, but in different hands. Now, so that could still lead to inflationary pressures, but then you also have to look at well. First of all, uh, competition still exists, so you know it would be a really bad idea, especially in the uh, Amazon world, for a company to start raising their prices, thinking that oh well, people have more money, so let's do that. Right. Well, Amazon is not going to do that. <laughs> they are all about lowering prices, and they will continue doing that. So they'll just take up that business. It's a really bad idea to raise prices if in any way you know you can avoid doing that. Another thing is to look at you know what is the ability to supply, you know, what is uh, our manufacturing capacity at for various things. When it comes to digital goods, of course, there are no limits and a lot of goods are digital now. Uh, if you look at, you know, non-digital goods, we're actually not even close to our peak capacity right now for a lot of things. So I think we're suffering right now from a lack of demand and money, money velocity is actually extremely low right now. Like uh, if you look at total money supply of everything, you're looking at like depression era low as far as uh, supply the velocity of money goes, and just a quick uh, velocity of money is just like the rate at which one dollar you know goes throughout the economy over and over again. Right. So if you're like a billionaire, a Scrooge McDuck, then your your dollar is not doing anything. It's just sitting in your vault that you swim in it. You know, it's it's just nothing. But if you hand it to somebody who's earning say ten thousand dollars a year, that gets spent immediately. All this money gets spent, and then it goes to somebody else as their paycheck, and then they spend it, and then mm -hmm. they spend it, and then right. they spend it. So it does a lot of good for uh, the economy to actually have that higher velocity, especially when it's as low as it is now. Especially now, exactly, because yeah. you have a kind of a plutocracy now where there's more money moving amongst the upper 5%, 10% than the entire bottom you know, 90 95%. So you're absolutely right. That's another thing that people don't realize. It actually would be good for our existing economy. It would actually improve Main Street, probably actually extract from Wall Street to a certain degree. Do you want to add something? You have a generations of Americans that have been raised on this hard work and this, and, and this notion of scarcity, yeah. really, that, that you have to go out and make your way. 
And as you guys were talking about, you know, the billionaire class and so forth, some of the things that you said to me seems to me the very reasons why they would be against it. I, I understand the objective reasons why for it. They've done very well making the working class abundant and making their work not highly valued and essentially putting the onus on the working class yep. to fill in the blanks, to band together, to fit more people in a room for housing, to just make ends meet. Letting go of that, if you will, uh, giving the working class a leg up, giving them, as, as you suggested, uh, giving the, uh, the working class a bit of negotiating power with the billionaire class or with the uh, ownership class, I, I, I'm sure they'd be dubious to, to give that up. It's a double-edged sword, it seems, because on one side you have that power and control. Mm -hmm. that, that goes back to the earliest uh, criticisms of capitalism 200 years ago, the general exploitation, unfairness. And then you have on the other side the preservation of the existing market system, which has created the billionaires. Mm -hmm. And that's where I think the, the intuition of the Musks and the Zuckerbergs and so on and the Bransons, it's not that they mean bad. There's a euphemistic kind of reality that goes on because they're so tied in with market economics. It's been such a great carrot stick rewarder for them that the idea that the system is somehow faulty mm -hmm. is, is easily to, easy to dismiss by saying, oh, we just have a little problem. Let's introduce universal basic income and then we'll just continue business as usual. So there's that, there's that combination of effects. You know what I mean? There's a clashing here and I think it's somewhat generational. I, I think that you will meet the most resistance in this from your uh, uh, baby boom generation because they're the last generation that really had that American dream. Yeah, the fruits of World War II. Correct. It, it gave them a false sense of security, a false mm -hmm. sense of abundance. That's a, that's a great point. Culturally, this is phenomenal because, you know, I've, I talk to a lot of purists that are so anti-market, and I think I fall into that category because there are plenty of problems within the market. But we have to do something as a transitional step. And the power yielded by recognizing that we don't have to live with this idea of of it's all or nothing in terms of competition, profit, and markets. Let's create this middle ground that says we are the wealth. We should be absorbing the dividend of our existence because of generations of social contribution. You know, nobody invents anything. There's no such thing as a single individual that came up with a phone or a smartphone. It's all a social consequence. Sure. So I can't reinforce that enough. But going back to what you just said, you implied, and one point was incentive. Mm -hmm. Now, incentive is something I'm sure you guys get a lot of... Uh, questions about too. So Larry, you know, when, when people say, oh, people are just going to sit around and do nothing. Yeah, there are plenty of studies of cash transfers that have been done for decades in which they've looked at, you know, do people work less or do people just be lazy and stay at home and, you know, just sit around on the couch and do nothing. And I think in a lot of people's minds, thinking of all the opportunities you can waste time today, you know, from, you know, from Netflix and chilling to just being on the internet, you just can just do nothing all day and be happy with that. But all the studies show, whether it's Manitoba in the 70s, where people were provided a minimum income, mm -hmm. the studies that were done before Nixon's plan in the late 60s and 70s, the more recent cash transfers uh, in Kenya and the work that GiveDirectly is doing, all the evidence points that people are not just being lazy and doing nothing. Oh, yeah. But the, the human potential of what people want to be doing, our whole society is built on striving to do more than where we are today. More and, people are graduating from, from high school that have universal basic income in those studies. And of course, we know by Daniel Pink and his research on the two forms of uh, motivation, yeah. intrinsic mm -hmm. and um, ex extrinsic mm -hmm. motivation, is that when people are given the opportunity to be creative, that's what they strive. People want meaning in their lives, not to sit at a kiosk, kiosk in a coffee shop somewhere, pretending that they like their job. Um, and that just adds a whole new level to the philosophical relevance of this. I think you would agree, Scott. Yeah, yeah. And uh, 
the thing is this uh, this question of work. It's funny because it's also based on a a lack of understanding of how the existing system works. Uh, because again, as as long as we've targeting as long as we're targeting benefits, then you're effectively introducing really high marginal tax rates on people. The same people who will say, "Well, you can't tax the rich, you know, eighty percent, because then they'll stop working." So you, know, <laughs> you can't do that. The yeah. same thing. That's what they're doing to those on on welfare. They're getting taxed eighty percent, ninety percent, even over a hundred percent. And if if they when they understand that, it kind of you know it's something that can click and it'd be like, "Wait a second, right? That doesn't make any sense. Why are we?" doing that because that's a huge work disincentive that we're doing with the welfare state as it is basic income changes that it removes that disincentive and so you actually you have much better work incentives especially to take more um, you know part-time work uh, especially also to create your own work to do unpaid work that is entirely you know not even you know it's ignored and also to do you know startups and stuff where you actually essentially UBI is, is capital for the people and also people, um, it creates consumers as well so that you can actually succeed in this stuff. You know, uh, yeah. uh, sorry, just a, just a quick example uh, of this from Namibia where this was a, a UBI pilot was run and a woman uh, received her first payment and went out and bought uh, yeast and flour to start baking goods. And she actually turned that into a very successful business. And she was able to do that you know, it wouldn't have had the same effect if she'd gotten a loan because no one else in the village would able to buy her stuff. But because there was UBI, that created customers as well. So everyone was able to buy her baked goods because there was money in this economy. And so that was, that's a, it's an understanding that people need to get is that it's on both sides. You, you, you need people, people need to be able to start businesses, but businesses are not gonna succeed unless they have customers. You can't just right. keep creating business after business and watching them fail. And I just want to throw in that UBI helps expand our discussion of what work is. I think when people say work, they immediately think paid work. They think paid labor yeah. for doing something to earn money to go do something else. Right. And it has absolutely no recognition of the unpaid work that is being done every day around the world, whether it's child caring and raising families, taking care of you know, your spouses or elderly or the, your kids or community work or volunteering or working in something that doesn't pay money but gives you incredible sense of pride like the open source movement. Uh, there's just so many different avenues where I believe it's, you know, it's more of meaningful work. Yeah. And it expands the definition in people's minds of what work is and UBI helps recognize that and give people the opportunity to do, to do different amounts of paid labor or paid labor and unpaid work, meaningful work and less meaningful work, being able to decide for themselves what's the right amount for them to go do. And I think that's how we get the best results from each other. Yeah. And I think this this benefit to consumerism argument is one of the best to sell the business class on because now you have people with surplus income. And I, I want to hearken it to when we went to the five-day work week. I believe late 40s, early 50s. And there was a lot of argument amongst the ownership class that now you know that now we're going to have these these workers are going to have a lot of extra time on their hands, and they, they saw it as a as a, as a detraction. Remember, people worked a half a day on Saturday, and then Sunday they were in church half the day, and so uh, th there was a definite element of social control there. Let's keep the uh, the uh, plebeian classes busy. When you suddenly had the weekend off, 
consumerism went crazy. People were traveling. You could take the weekend off. The hotel industry has benefited. This is the explosion of uh, a lot of pastimes in America that have generated millions of dollars. And I think the, th the same thing could happen here. I think one argument that's out there, and we've sort of addressed it, is that by essentially giving everyone 1,000 or whatever that number comes out to be, we're just going to raise the floor. It seems to me that along with UBI uh, comes probably the need for a lot of other policies. First of all, I would think UBI would need to be a part of a somewhat complex algorithm so it would raise uh, with uh, society's ebb and flow and money, uh, maybe sure. some, somehow connected to GDP. Right, right. That's one of the issues we have with unemployment today is it's a fixed number. Right. And or the, the poverty line. Correct. Yeah. And yeah. in short order, in a short amount of time, even if they raise it, by the, you know, you've got to go back to a fight to get to raise it again, and by then it's long since behind. Sure. You might have landlords who then will you know, raise the rent to accompany that, or you might have individuals, and I think we can all agree that there will be some individuals in society who aren't especially capable at operating within a capitalist society that will always hover near subsistence. I would just add to that, you know, not everyone is equal in their capacity. These are folks that shouldn't be looked down upon like they shouldn't exist, which is what the market economy does by its structural default because people suffer. Instead, you, you realize that you have to have a compassionate society that has the capacity to take innovators and that have a creative talent to work in the sense that you describe, Larry. And then also to use the fruits of this abundance and innovation and productivity to help those that have gotten the short end of the stick for whatever reason that has happened due to an accident they may, may have had, someone who got injured in war. You know, there's endless reasons for this. And it brings on the other idea, you know, I, I've, I've gotten in arguments with people that say, well, universal basic income, that's just socialism because we're not all equal, therefore we all deserve unequal fruits. And that is, that is a caustic view that has been drilled through propaganda. Yes. And it, it, it really doesn't help anything because our society has to help these folks anyway. I mean, L.A. is pretty bad when it comes to its homelessness. But, man, when I walk around San Francisco, I mean, this, oh, is, yeah. a, this is a blight on civilization to have the fact that you have tens of thousands of people getting more and more mentally ill. So, I mean, I could go on a long tangent about that. But... Uh, yeah, so there, there, it's not an issue of equality in terms of suddenly everyone's equal in that old socialist propaganda sense. I just want to get, get that out in the open. It's an issue of actually having compassion for, this, to the, for the striation of human development and the fact that people are different. And there's no reason why people should suffer economically just because they have an excessive capacity, or I should say benefit economically, or they have a limited capacity, you know? Yeah, the thing too about this is that uh, you know we're talking about equality of opportunity and not equality of outcome. Even Hayek saw that as well. You know, the free market economist Hayek, that uh, you yeah, know, even sure. Austrian school. Right, right. So he saw this as is equality of opportunity. He's saying that's a legitimate. Uh, uh, it's a legitimate something that that government can do. You know, that they have that ability to do that it, as long as they're not guaranteeing that everybody gets you know ends up in the same place then it's fine but you have to just make sure everyone starts in the same place so that's what this basic income is it's just saying okay you start with this amount with no conditions whatsoever it's just that's what you get and then you can go from there and i think that's a it's a very profound uh thing it's even especially if you look at like just uh you know the what we pretend to to be for in the u.s you know about the uh, you know, pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness. Uh, you know, it's it's uh, you, you you can't pull people back. You have to actually give them an actual chance, and the chance doesn't exactly exist right now for many people. We're becoming more and more stratified, and it's becoming stickier. With um, you know, if you're 40% of those born in the bottom 20% are going to stay there, 
and 40% of the top 20% are going to stay there. You know, that, that just, that's not right as right. far as like the American dream goes. And, uh, you know, this too, this question of, of um, you know, won't, won't people start working? There's some interesting cognitive dissonance there too, because mm-hmm. it's in the, in the US, we're all about freedom, right? And uh, when you say that, when you say, well, what if they'll stop working? Then you're also saying that the only reason people work is as we force them to. <laughs> you, know, know. you don't what, have the freedom mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. not work. We should even challenge this idea: Why does everyone have to work? So there you go. Throughout you, history, that not everyone has worked. There, therein lies that sense of existence, where we, instead of being defined by what you're supposedly contributing to society, which yeah. is really contributing to a corporation that exploits your labor and on average, and then takes the fruits of that and surplus value. Uh, what does it mean to actually exist as a civilization? Because you know, I want to return to that argument of that, that about the the inequality of people that's natural, which is actually a good thing because everyone has different skills. And obviously, in the system we have now, as you talked about with work, I I, I was a musician at one point actively. I thought I had something to contribute artistically. I still do it as myself, you know, just for my own interests. But I could have pursued something that could have had a longer, larger meaning if it wasn't for the limitations imposed by my environment. And I meet people all day. You know, you, you see this crisis happening with refugees, people that are doctors now that are showing up in Florida and they're having to prostitute themselves or to work as maids. These are PhD people coming from countries. I mean, the, the, the sickness is robust. Yeah. And we have it here. I mean, there's still news stories about you know, college trained professionals and those who are going to school to become with PhDs and and hopefully becoming professors and they're having to actually go be a prostitute or like live out of their car or these are educated people. So I think it it moves away from the idea of what value we inherently have and can bring to society when it's not just the value of a dollar, like how, much, how many dollars can we bring into society? Right. And there's so many other ways to quantify the value of a human being right. than the you know how much your bank account is. Right. And that's it's such a strong point of how we define worth, and we need to move away from that. We need to we need to recognize the the individual liberties and the the powers that we all possess, yep. and get that out there and be like this is what's valuable. And you know I I love this example of. Warren Buffett, who's talked about this, which was recognizing that his particular skill set would not have been valuable in any other point in history or in any other location in history than where he was born in the right place at the right time to the right family in the right circumstance in the United States where he could, you know, derive the value of recognizing differences in stock price and stock value and become the world's wealthiest person. But if he was born in, you know, in Africa, that wouldn't have served him you know, so well. If he had been born in any other country at any other time in history, that would have been a useless skill yeah. and he would have not survived. This is something a lot of rich people forget. Exactly. And, and yeah. so we have to recognize that we are in a, we're in a place where we can control an environment where we can draw out the skills and passions of everybody. And if we can build that floor for people to have that existence and go from there, and whatever your talent is and it doesn't matter, that's what you should be doing. That's the way we should be moving forward. Absolutely. And I want to bring up this uh, idea of the human family again. You know, there was a time really pre-World War II uh, throughout the world, throughout history, when family really took care of a lot of these problems that we are are talking about, mental illness, inability to work. Now, post-World War II in this corporate state, everyone's expected to work, everyone is expected to contribute. And that's never been the case throughout history. There's always been broken individuals an individual who maybe wasn't born as smart or as capable or some physical deformity, mm-hmm. whatever. And family took care of that a lot. Yeah. 
And this society, everyone's expected to work. Uh, Harken back to Reagan uh, dissolving a lot of the mental facilities in the early 80s, very famous act that that, that released a ton of homeless folks to the street. Now the state, and UBI is an example of it, is forced to be the family and forced to sort of help out. And I think it's great, but the state becoming the family, becoming the support system does have, shall we say, some dubious uh, aspects to it. And that might be something we want to talk about. It's now, uh, yeah, Scott. Actually, so it's funny that you mentioned that as well, because this is actually goes to Charles Murray's argument, of all people. <laughs> and uh, you know, his argument is that, is that it's because our society's become so frayed that base income would be so valuable because you would actually enable people to help each other more so than it. So on the one hand, we can look at basic income as being the federal government taking care of everybody, but at the same time, that then enables everyone else to take care of each other in ways that we are currently unable to do. You know, you can actually, and we've seen this actually as well as, as the, in the experiments, is that we, we see a, a, an increase in social cohesion, social capital. Right. Like that's something that we, we have observed so it, it, you can it, it's just it's just money going to those people just like in alaska they ever, they're all getting money but that enables people to do so much more together that they can't they can't do right now i would just add the you know the pre- prevalence of crime highly unequal societies generate more crime and poverty of course is the most notorious precondition for crime so if anyone out there that has you know, thinking somewhat clearly about trying to feel a little bit more safe when they walk down the street, they should be in favor of universal basic income. You know, it's a kind of a no-brainer, but it's amazing how these philosophical ideal- ideologies just cloud people's judgment. Have there been any studies that yielded negative results? Uh, I mean, I know that I've researched this <laughs> online, and I cannot find it. So, so apparently you guys aren't just p- cherry-picking the good examples. But is there any bad examples that you know of? Yeah, no. See, that's the thing. is like We're talking about an orchard full of evidence, and it's even hard to find a cherry in the other direction. So right. here's, an, here's an example of... Um, of a negative effect. And so you'll see this is entirely relative. In the India experiment, um, one group of people specifically did not like the basic income, and that was the money lenders. Right. So people, mm. once they had basic income unconditionally, mm. then there's no reason to go out and accept a thousand percent interest loan mm. for some reason, you know? And what you see is across studies, you see debts go down and savings go up. In that world, you're going to have less need for high-interest loans, and so anybody profiting off of that right now, then they're they're pretty much done for. They're going to find it very difficult in this post-UBI world. So that's because a negative, if you are one of them. Anything around the exploitation of labor, I think yeah. those who are in those positions yeah. who use the fact that people have no choice but sure. to do something so that they can survive, and because they have to survive, they can be paid very little for their efforts. Those are a lot of people who will be a little upset about this. Yeah. So basically, and, you're saying that the people with the most power <laughs> are the only ones that will not benefit from this. Hmm. In a sense. Yeah. But well, then they get it because if you're creating the products with technology and automation, you need customers. And so your exactly. customers need to have yeah. money, yeah. And at least in the system we have today. So actually, they will still benefit, you know, as long as they have customers who will have a way to pay for it. You go back to the 1970s, where the biggest credit expansion in the West. I think it was during the uh, petrol crisis and, and the economic uh, uh, re- recession then, the burst of 
people buying on credit to, to, to get what they need as opposed to getting increased salaries and so on. There's a seed of that in universal basic income that I think elites, so to speak, recognize. Well, we went off the gold standard in 71. Right. And really, real wages for workers never really recovered from the early 70s and have been declining ever since. They, they were replaced by credit expansion. Exactly. And I think right now we're in a similar period. You know, we look at the wages, they've been flatlining, and mm-hmm. then the CEOs and all of it, it's just you know, exponentially divergent. And I think this, this is you know, one of those little caveats that has to be thought about, um, which makes me think that there has to be another step, too, once you get past UBI. And that's one I put one, a question I want to pose to all of you. In this kind of quest to not, I don't even want to use the word redistribute. It's just, it's simply to distribute the wealth of our society across, <laughs> re, across civilization. To say we are a, a singular productive species. And while you might have your imbalances in terms of this supposed genius that does something revolutionary, and then these people that are there to actually you know, make it happen in terms of labor, there's still the shared social phenomenon. There's still the evolution of science and technology, which is ultimately a socially a unified progress. So what is the next step after UBI in terms of this quest to try and really harness our abundance, harness the best of the human condition, stop exploitation? I'll start with you, Scott. Yeah, so actually this gets into um, really how I became, how I came to feel so strongly about basic income in the first place. And also, uh, I don't know if you, if you know this, Peter, as well, but uh, I was actually very into the zeitgeist movement uh, for years before basic income, and it was through you. So it's just kind of funny, too, that here we are talking together, and just like you said, building off of, you know, how science works, you build off the previous one, and so you introduced me to this idea, and so I started telling other people about this idea, and other people are building off me, and it's just this constant progress. And the thing about uh, the basic income that really got me was that I, I do think that humanity is capable of so much more and that we need to get out of this, this scarcity mindset and we need to use technology to create abundance for, for everybody. And it was basic income, uh, when I saw that I realized that this is, this is it, like there, you just, you can't get people to consider these really huge things if they're only focused on what's directly in front of them. And that's the, that's our society as it's built right now is it's kind of like a head down society, make it to the next month, you know, just trying to get by. And if that, in that kind of society, you can't focus long-term, you, you can't really think about the bigger things. And so as long as we require money to live, then people are going to be really focused on getting money. As soon as you no longer require that to live because you've given people enough unconditionally to live, then all of a sudden money loses its importance. Right. And you can start to think about things other than money. And you can start to focus on even what's possible without say, you know, building wealth. Like um, even what I'm doing right now, like I have a basic income, starts every month, I get $1,000 to start with. And I find from my own experience that I would rather do stuff for free you know, this, it's, I want, whatever I create, I want as many people to read it as possible. And what I don't want to do is say, you know, sell an article for $500 or something. And then I no longer own the rights, but someone else does. And then they release it to their following. And let's say, you know, a hundred thousand people read it or something. But if I can have 10 million people read something because I released it for free and right. put it into the creative commons and said, Hey, you can share this as much as you want to by just putting my name on it, you're good to go. 
then so many more people will read it. And I'm not directly profiting off of it, but that has more meaning to me. And so it's funny that people can actually look down on, say, someone like me. Like if you were to look at the income that I'm earning and say, oh my gosh, like look at that person who's just like barely living above the poverty line or whatever. Oh my gosh, like he must be miserable. I'm not miserable at all. I'm extremely happy with what I'm doing. It it provides a lot of meaning. It's not just about money. It's about so much Mm. more than money. And so this is, I think it really gets down to this, uh, this, this mentality of scarcity versus abundance. And right now we're stuck in the scarcity mentality. If we can actually decouple income from work, then we, it's like a game changer. Yeah. Uh, you'll just look at the effect of scarcity on thinking. Like, uh, I, I don't know if you've ever heard of the experiment of, of India with the IQ tests that they were able to test before and after harvest. You know, they're able to look at. So this is the same people. And prior to this point in time, they're essentially impoverished. And then all of a sudden, they get a huge windfall from their crops being sold. And then all of a sudden, they're essentially rich. <laughs> so you, you test them before and after, and you see an IQ difference of about 14 IQ points. Wow. And you, mm. you could even... Wow. Uh, you could even induce this if people just thinking about it, which is funny. This was a test in a mall that they did. And what they, they asked people to consider uh, what would happen if, say, they had an unexpected expense of $300 for their car. And, you know, should they fix it or should they not fix it? And should they wait and see what happens or not? And then they tested them. And no matter your income, $300 was no biggie. It didn't affect but then they asked, what about $3,000? So if you have a sudden cost of $3,000, you know, then you pay it or not pay it, how does it affect you? Again, there was no effect on those of a high enough income, but for the lower incomes, that dropped their IQ by about 14 points. So it's just like this burden, yeah, this, this mental wow. burden, yeah, in the mind. It's a, it's a tax on our mind that we're, just, just imagine how much more capable the human species would be if like, a ginormous percentage of us suddenly had a 14 IQ boost. Right. <laughs> you know, like just being able to think more. And I think that that's really what we're looking at is, is, is this is a big step that will enable us to make, to look towards the future and really think long-term. And then there's so much more that's possible after that. Definitely. I, w- I would just add, if people are interested in that subject, Robert Sapolsky in his book, mm-hmm. Stress, talks about the release of cortisol and what happens to people when they feel that and they can't think properly mm-hmm. you know it's so again the idea of having a world without this kind of constant monetary stress of survival be a profound shift i think you can make a strong argument though but that world exists very clearly by design a stressed out population that's striving to it's, just survive doesn't have a system consequence doesn't oh, yeah. have the well, sure. it's a consequence but even potentially yeah, i would they want to keep everybody occupied. it's like david, david graber remember david graber he's the economist he yeah. said what he's the author of uh, the bullshit jobs article yes, really famous. I, I saw that he, said, yes. he says something to the effect of it's as though there's a secret group of people that are just trying to keep everybody distracted and can, and working in in because obviously politically if people had time to think about mm-hmm, what's mm-hmm. going on in the world then they might actually inspire more change or become a part of that and change that's a dangerous that's it, dangerous that to a ruling elite a dangerous you know. I, I mean the question i want to pose to our experts was what other policies in addition to ubi 
do you think need to come into effect to, to maximize the potential of UBX? I would, I, it seems to me that uh, universal health care, straight yeah. up. Oh, sure. yeah, definitely. Yeah. Totally. Universal <laughs> education, too. Yeah, that's, that's a no brainer. And, and by sure. the way, if you're giving me $1,000, I can afford that 250 for the Obamacare or whatever it is. Uh, instantly, right off the top, I can cut that check and never have to think about it. Yeah. You know, but to me, I'm just curious what other policies you guys think uh, should be there. Um, maybe, like, maybe we need to look at the 40 hour work week. And that's something I was ahead on my list here. You know, you start to reduce the hours that people work and you start to increase the UBI. And we have, of course, as we all know, the, the exponential increase of efficiency, the more with less, the German, Jer Jeremy Rifkin's zero marginal cost, Buckminster Fuller's ephemeralization. And in that equation, you have more and more being produced with less and less labor and need to engage in the market economy. That seems like a natural gravitation as well. And I also want to, before I forget this, I want to throw this out there because it frustrates me greatly when you see the neoliberal order and the, the, the hypnosis that society went under during the Reagan and Thatcher era. Everyone decided that private enterprise was the only thing that could ever solve problems. And the idea of any kind of state organization, in effect, the idea of any kind of democracy suddenly became inefficient and something that would only lead to bureaucratic tyranny. Do you know what I'm saying? Yes. You know, this is something that I, I always like to point out to people, especially when I talk to the libertarians, is because, well, you know, we have proof that when the state does something, it's always terrible. And the, look at the education system. Like, well, you have to step back and realize all the influences that have made the state enterprise, or whatever you want to call it, be that inefficient. And that's the perpetual lobbying and deconstruction of any type of actual interest to do it right. And that's something I think that, you know, when it comes to UBI, there has to be a different sense of what the state is. And that's for a larger conversation. But I think when we talk about the state, we should actually just get rid of the term state. That's more of a... Of Highly a, charged. Yeah, it's a derogatory term. It makes it seem finite and strong. It should be the government of people, the government of people in a democracy. That's what the state's supposed to be. And it's just, it's disgusting to me that you, you run into that um, over and over again. But anyway, I'm ranting. Jordan, <laughs> what do you think, like, the next step? We've covered, you know, education, universal health care, uh, UBI, of course, as that foundation, shorter work weeks. I have something in mind, by the way, so I'm, but what do you, what do you think the next step is, Jordan? I think Apart that, from that. Um, the next, I think the UBI is a great stepping stone to the ultimate goal uh, that the zeitgeist advocates is the resource-based economy. Mm -hmm. um, I also think that the, the blockchain technology ah. has a lot to yes. offer as far as, uh, and it might even um, offer a solution that bypasses the need for a basic income altogether, and that's by a, uh, introducing hyper-wealth. And you want to talk about a redistribution of wealth from the 1% to the rest of everybody else, the blockchain has the uh, potential to do that. Uh, that is uh, a whole nother yeah. podcast. Exactly. That's what yeah. I was going to say. If someone asked that question, I asked for some questions. We've covered quite a bit of them, but should UBI be set up with cryptocurrencies? You know, that's an interesting kind of way to reduce the intermediary forces and how you would source that. I'm in and, big favor of that. Um, Larry, what do you think about the idea? Of what's the next stage of this kind of thinking? Well, I'm, I'm in favor of sort of the three pillars I think we've all mentioned, which is health, universal health care, universal education, and basic income as that starting point for everybody. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, when it comes to other specific call-outs, obviously basic income isn't going to solve every problem, but I think it's going to solve a lot of problems. And it opens, like Scott mentioned, it opens the door and unlocks what I, I believe his term is the adjacent possible, which is like the next step 
toward our, our evolution and where we can go in progress. So it's, it's hard to say, well, we need to do these sets of other things because we first need to get through this set of doors and we need to unlock the potential and removing the, the idea that people can't say no to, to dangerous work or can't say no to exploitation. You know, once we start to see the results of you know, hundreds of millions of people being able to go after their true potential and figure out the society that we're building from that, I think that's when we can start crafting you know, even more nuanced you know, focused policies that can address the problems of that day. Yeah. But it's hard to see even that far. I mean, ultimately, I think this foundation you know, and I know we're sort of in the futuristic sort of talking here, but I really think, you know, as Scott has mentioned in some of his articles, we can either go down sort of the Mad Max approach or the Star Trek approach. And I really think UBI <laughs> is is toward the Star Trek approach yeah, because sure. you're unlocking the potential of people and giving them the freedom to choose the kind of labor, the work that they want to go do in, in this life. Yeah. And that's how we're going to get to the next set of options of how we can further make that progress in yeah. society. Sorry, can I, can I just uh, I just want to make one one point too because I feel um, it hasn't really been mentioned. But the thing, one thing that's really powerful about UBI is it has, I would say, disproportionate effects on those who are, have long been more marginalized in society. So we're talking about minorities, you know, we're talking about women, and I think that uh, you know that's going to open up a lot of doors, uh, you know, disproportionately so. Like um, that there was a a poll done, you know, asking people with a basic income if they would, uh, you know, what they would do with a basic income. And if you were looking at, if you're looking at, at Caucasian, then it was around like 3% wanted to start a business. And if you looked African American, it was 30%. You know, so just it's a huge difference as to what's closed right now. What, you know, how much, how much more can people do? How much more can women do? How much more free will they be to say escape uh, abusive situations or situations that only exist because they can't say no? Uh, same thing with black people. Uh, just same thing with so many other groups. Um, you know, even the disabled as well that are effectively locked out of the economy. Right. And so, you know, part of this looking forward is, you know, what is the next step? I think a lot of those steps will emerge from these that are really being held down at the moment, uh, disproportionately so. Definitely. I would add, uh, just to finish my, my, my particular question, that UBI represents effectively the wealth of our society and our productivity, which is, is not a monetary value ultimately. It's, it's our capacity, it's the, it's the true capital of our thought and innovation. Given that, and given the, all, the, all the other trajectories that are at hand, such as an access society, such as a, an automated society, an open source society, the next step to me, once you achieve this, is collective open source industries where you produce things that have no monetary value. So you end up with food being produced for free through advanced systems. You end up with energy systems. No money's needed because the abundance has been generated. That's how I keep thinking about this in terms of the kind of the, the hyperbulation to this sort of final stage idea where you don't have this complex arcane system of markets anyway, which I, I feel, and I'm not sure if everyone here agrees, but it needs to be considered on its way out at a minimum, uh, and we should strive for that. So you end up with energy and food, and then certain types of production that's automated, that's open sourced, that's a collectively owned type of circumstance in sectors, and then there's no money involved in that because it's no longer necessary. That's where I see UBI, the trajectory of UBI leaning towards, which seems feasible. 
Yeah. There's no reason why Absolutely. you can't produce in vertical farms food off the coast of here in Los Angeles at such high efficiency that it's marginal what the actual material cost is. After Given no barriers point. from the status quo, that's the natural sure. progression. Exactly. Once you enter into open source and access and all these other elements that are on the same trajectory as UBI yes. and the same logic, we can see a very different economic structure emerging that isn't based around trade and markets anymore. It's not centralized because decentralization is a part of it. You, you end up in pockets of small forms of centralization, mm -hmm. but it's not like some kind of global or nationwide thing because localization mm -hmm. is the best type of sustainability preference as opposed to globalization, which Gandhi hated. Gandhi made an extreme point years ago before the, the huge mass of globalization even started at the Industrial Revolution, uh, at least the, the more the advancement of the Industrial Revolution by, the t by his time. And he pointed out that you know, this is just one recipe for centralized power. And it's absolutely true. Transnational corporations are exploiting resources and labor. So you have to break away from that. And on par with localization comes all these other advancements. And that, to me, I think that's the most profound thing for people to consider. All this, this new landscape is presented for us, and UBI is, is an excellent road towards this new realization of, of human innovation and integrity. Yeah, we've talked a lot about how it will help you know, the less fortunate, but those folks that are already in the middle class, if they've got an extra thou that they can, that's laying around, besides the benefit to consumerism and travel, what if, as you're getting your check, would you like to donate to your local symphony? Because yes. it, this is money you weren't expecting anyway. And so all kinds of fabulous things could be crowdfunded with just sure. a small that's, that's portion a of, your, well. of your UBI. Sure. If, if $100 of your UBI went to something for the collective good. Yeah, funny that you mentioned that too, because that's actually exactly how they do it in Alaska with the dividend, is that they provide options yes. for you. So yes. consider if you do you not want this, you can actually do it here, 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 or here. And that's very popular for people you know, to use. It's like, I don't need an extra thousand dollars i would actually prefer this to go to sure. say school sure. or whatever mm -hmm. and i think it, it then it changes the whole notion of needing to donate to these organizations in the first place because really the most scarce resource as we move into a world with ubi and and that that floor the most scarce resources are time yeah and i think when people are free to have the time and the energy and don't have to be asking for donations because they have the time and they have that basic income and have been able to pull together an existence that they feel comfortable with and they can give their time to the, the causes they believe in, then you can have people really be going after the things that mean a lot to them, symphonies or nonprofits or more just any kind of work that's not paid. Yeah. Yeah. Scott, num quickly, what would you say is the greatest obstacle to UBI today? Uh, the greatest obstacle uh, to base income right now in the U.S. Uh, I think is just a, a a lack of awareness of it as a possibility and as a legitimate possibility too, let's say. Uh, you know, just if you were to do like a, a poll right now of every member of Congress of what a basic income is, a small percentage of people will, will know. You know, we they don't even know yet about about um, you know the dangers of automation, although it's promising that they even just set up actually an AI caucus just recently. Um, so they're just starting to think about this more. But I think people in general, like you have to be pushing for this. You know, this isn't something that I, I don't think it should be handed down from on high right. and said, "All right, everybody, here's your basic income." I think you'll you'll see it differently. But if if you know 80% of the population is saying 
we deserve a basic income and it's not charity it's not welfare it's ours it is ours it is our right it is our dividend uh it's just being withheld from us currently then that's a different situation and i think that you know that's when 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 politicians start actually going out of their way to say that they're for it and you know they're talking about it and if you're against it then you're not going to win and so the the biggest thing right now is just an awareness campaign and a knowledge campaign because not only it's one thing to hear about it but then it's another thing to really start to look deeply into it yeah. and because you can get the wrong idea from just hearing about it but if it's if it's in your brain then and you and you just know about this idea and what it essentially is then you start to read stuff and hear things and you start to process it through that lens you know like you read about how uh, oh it turns out that a bunch of of um of college professors are actually engaging in sex work in order to get by and then you're like oh well wait a second if they had a basic income then would that still be true (laughs) and so you start to see things in that way and you're like well would this be true with basic income would this be happening with basic income and it starts to build and you're like wow this is actually really important we need to do this immediately and so i think that's the that's the biggest uh that's the biggest barrier hey scott can you tell us before we go where people can find out more information like on your websites and blogs and on the patreon site twitter whatever yeah sure so uh if you want to like study basic income, uh, especially if you want to keep up on just every link about it that's po- that's that's created every day, go to reddit.com/r/basicincome. That's uh, I'm a moderator for that, and the whole point of that is really just to collect everything in one place, and it's been collected there for years now. You can study, you know, news pieces and blogs and articles and papers and studies and just all sorts of stuff there. It's a wealth of information, so definitely go there. Uh, to stay up to date on actual like basic income related news around the around the world as this stuff goes forward, uh, basicincome.org is what I suggest. Uh, you know, subscribing to that news flash that we always know what's the latest. You know, what's happening. And uh, my blog is scottsantons.com. You know, I blog there um, you know, on Twitter too. It's Scott Santons. But really, just keep an eye out and and just share stuff and read and. And yeah, just try to be a part of this. Absolutely. Speaking of that, Larry, you, you're working in Los Angeles, UBI. Tell us more about how that's started and the organization itself briefly. Yeah, right now it's, like Scott pointed out, a big part of just getting the message out is really the struggle right now. But because basic income is starting to pop up in various forms and conversations, it's really important to try and engage and share the idea of basic income as soon as as soon as as much as I can so that you know I can help frame it in people's minds to give them the idea of what it is so has there been like an LA event for it yeah so we have so there's the basic income meetup group for Los Angeles that I help run uh, here in West LA and there is build the floor which is my site to help gather people in LA and sort of provide a, a place for people to read about basic income as well as well as the uh, links that Scott mentioned as well. And we're hoping to do more events. San Francisco is such a hotbed of activity right now with the Economic Security Project and a lot of uh, attention is there. And what I'm trying to do is help get LA on the map as being a location where we should be having this conversation. We have the technology, we have the industries, we've got the the homeless population and the soaring house prices, all these ingredients that, that speak to the idea that we need to engage our community in these conversations and as as one country, but especially as one state like California, to speak to the need to talk about basic income yeah. and to draw that out of our politicians eventually and make it happen. Very good. 
Do you have a preferred social media that oh, you yeah. reach out to that you want to share? Yeah, my um, my website is buildthefloor.org, and also on Twitter, I'm Larry uh, at Larry Cohen. Great, and we'll put those in the description of the video. Gentlemen, thank you very much for being here. Larry, Scott, really appreciate it, taking the time. Yeah, thanks for having me. Great discussion. And Rob, absolutely, and Rob, thank you, Jordan, Scott. thank you very much, guys. Thanks, and Peter. We're going to wrap this up. My name is Peter Joseph, and we'll be back soon enough with the next one. All right, guys.